Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 29. Hard to believe we're almost at 30. Also hard to believe it's in December now, but here we are. And uh, speaking of December, before we get on to today's episode and talking about today's guest, um, this is Friday, December 4th, that this episode's being released. Episode 30 will be released next Friday, December 11th. And that will be the last Friday episode for the rest of the year. Um, I'm obviously not going to be releasing anything on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And um, as far as the 18th goes... It's just it's just kind of close to the holidays, and it's just a lot going on. Uh, I'm going to have one episode between the 11th and Christmas Day on the 25th. Um, I'm not too sure what it's going to be, but it, it, it won't be the usual format. And then sometime between Christmas and New Year, I do have a, a, a regular episode, but it will drop on a different day. So as I often say at the end of each episode, if you want to follow what's coming up next follow us on twitter or instagram at life in the pit pod and in this case that's truly the case because again i don't quite know the schedule beyond december 11th until we get back into january on the 8th but there will be at least a couple of episodes um dropped at not our usual time but follow along in there and i will i will let you know what's coming up when there's a definite plan One unexpected benefit that I've received uh, since I launched this podcast is hearing from you uh, around the world. I've I've had communication with somebody who is a music student in the UK uh, this week. And um, also, occasionally, some of you listen to this podcast and you, you give me some feedback. And a few of you have said... I've actually got some experience. I'd love to share my story. Uh, can I come on your podcast sometime? And and I've I've said yes, but I've, but I've also said yes when I had twenty or twenty five guests already lined up. Some of them recorded, some of them scheduled. So I I said well, we'll have to wait a few months. Well, I've talked to a couple of them already, recorded our conversations, and uh, I have another one scheduled soon. And I'm finally able and and very pleased to be able to present the first of these episodes. This is my conversation today with Harlan Feinstein. Harlan came to me, approached me, said, uh, you've you've had a lot of um, woodwind doublers. In fact, next week's going to be another one. Uh, I just, I know a lot of them and they all have their own stories. Um, Goes, it might be interesting to have somebody who plays brass instruments, multiple brass instruments, and acts as a brass doubler. And and indeed, that is interesting. I, I don't know anybody in person who makes a habit out of that. Um, but Harlan plays all of the families of brass instruments. He plays the trumpet, the French horn, the trombone, the tuba, and of course, all the accessory instruments that go with those. And he talks about, you know, the pros and cons of taking that approach, which is what we refer to as a generalist, as opposed to just, you know, trying to play trumpet for years upon years and becoming the best you can. There's a, an advantage to that, but there's also disadvantage. We're going to talk about that. And um, one of the things, one of the advantages of, of doing what Harlan has done is it gives you a lot of choices of work. If there's uh, a trumpet book, well, great, he can play it. But maybe there's no trumpet book, but there's a French horn book. Well, he's... He's able to play that, too. And same thing with trumpet or trombone. Um, not all shows have the same instrumentation. So he has opened more doors for himself by choosing the path that he has. He's also had the privilege of living in three different metro areas um, as a professional musician. He's lived in the Washington, D.C. area, in Boston area, and he currently lives in Seattle. And he's going to talk about all three of those uh, theater scenes. Uh, one of them, you can get quite a bit of work. One, you can't get a whole lot of work. And one, you can get a decent amount of work. And uh, I'll let you try to figure out which is which and see how you do when 
Harlan tells you kind of how that stacks up. So here to talk about all of the brass instruments in the world of musical theater, this is my conversation with Harlan Feinstein. Harlan, thank you for reaching out. You are the first guest that I've had uh, who started off as a listener of the podcast. So thank you for, first of all, thank you for being a listener. Also, thank you for, uh, you know, taking time to share the comments, just reaching out. And and I just look forward to hearing your stories of your time in the pit. Um, why don't we start off with, uh, tell us what instruments you play and also where where your home base is right now. Oh, sure. Um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is I've been looking forward to this. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Uh, instruments that I play, um, uh, trump, like I think this will be loosely in order that they were picked up. The brass instruments are uh, trumpet and then horn, and then I probably tuba and then trombone. Are probably in the order that I picked them up, but really I'm I'm pretty evenly split trumpet, horn, and trombone, and a lesser amount, to, a, a growing amount of tuba, um, and I dabble on some other stuff, but I don't know, maybe maybe we'll uh, get into that uh, on on other questions, but um, uh, and then Seattle is is my home base now. We've been here, I think it's about 15 years, uh, and. Boston before that, uh, and DC before that. Okay. Yeah. So you've, uh, well, bi-coastal has been your career. sounds like. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. No, you got a whole, Ohio, got a whole but... middle of the country we haven't done yet, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, so you've got like all the major families of the brass instruments covered. So, so, so did you say trumpet would be like your first? Well, that was the first one that I picked up. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I I always get asked, you know, what's my primary instrument, and I defy uh, really answering that. I really am pretty evenly split between those, you know, those top three: trumpet, horn, and trombone. Right. Um, I've worked quite a lot on all three of them. Um, and but if if you if I was bound to which order I learned them in, right? It's trumpet, horn, trombone. Yeah. Well, as a previous guest, Ronald Ford said, my primary instrument is the one I'm getting paid to play at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it convenient for whenever somebody says, oh, you're just a trumpet player. I'm really like, no, no, I'm really a horn right. player. <laughs> right. And let all that wash off of me, all those stereotypes. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, French horn was an instrument I played back in high school and I played throughout college and i played a little bit afterwards i i knew when i was in college that that i was a point where i was a decent college player but i was never going to be a professional player but it was one of those things i've you know i kept it around for a while and you know if if the gig wasn't like overly demanding i could go play it but you know i'm a pianist and composer first and you know at, at some at some point you either have to say i'm going to keep this to or or drop it but um the the one thing that i that i find interesting brass is a very easy family to go from one horn to another in that the the fingering systems are all the same it's like as soon as you figure out that like french horns overtone system is an octave higher or it's an octave up the line you know compared to everybody else but Uh but it's and 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 like i figured out things like okay and trombone anytime on trumpet you would play all three valves that's seventh position right anytime you would do open valve that's first position so it's like it even have that similarity but the the biggest challenge for me has got to be the embouchure adjustment because (laughs) going like from french horn to you know trombone even not even mentioning tuba quite a bit of a (laughs) quite a bit of a difference it is um although it's obviously there are a lesser amount of people that double on the brass instrument on different families of brass instruments than on the uh in the woodwind section as you guys have talked about but think about the like you're you're doing the same sort of uh, as as you noted you're doing this the very similar fingering systems and very similar action with your embouchure um and it's just sort of gradations of sort of where you're pinning your uh, your embouchure with the with the mouthpiece and so, you know, it's slightly different 
musculature, but it's the same sort of basic idea as opposed to in the reed family. Um, think about flute and oboe, right. like the, like those are, those are as opposite as things can be. One is, uh, there's no back pressure at all and it's perfectly free blowing. And the other one is like, you know, the most amount of pressure at, that your lips are delivering, uh, as you could imagine, and totally different methods of sound production. And so really there, there's a drastic, drastically bigger difference between the, the, all the instruments in the, in the reed family. Right. That's sort of how I think of it. But I, but I almost wonder if that doesn't make it a little easier. Uh, you know, one of the things I do in my spare time is I, I'm, I'm like trying to learn. Well, I'm, I'm fairly f far along in Spanish. I, I'm trying to get better at that. And I'm fairly new to French. Well, um, I got into it. I got used to it. And someone pointed out one time, that's maybe not the best combination because the, there are a lot of similarities. And I started <laughs> noticing that. It's like, uh, wait a minute, is, is, is without sin or senza, which, which one am I using? Yeah. Whereas something like if you wanted to learn Spanish and Japanese, you know, side by side, that one might be a little easier because there's like nothing in common <laughs> and and you can and you can you can yeah. get into one or the other whereas um and that's the thing i would have a problem with the brass and and my only experience really with the doubling was mm -hmm. you know uh, in high school i would we would be working on concert music and marching music at the same time so i'm going from mellophone to French horn and yeah. uh, and then sometimes we would have like be asked to play a flugelhorn and and I remember a teacher that I had at the time was like well for French horn you want to try to get like two thirds of your top lip to one third of the bottom for like the standard I'm sure whereas like right. all the others try to get 50-50 <laughs> and so I tried to make that adjustment but you used to have a and trumpet size to French horn size isn't too too different you know? right yeah yeah but, but you you did put your finger on it like the the ideal embouchure is different between those two right it's the 50 50 which i don't know that probably has for the trumpet stuff that probably has to do a lot with endurance right. you know I'm, I'm not exactly sure but um i do end up with um i have a more horn like trumpet embouchure and uh, i think that does I think that ends up with a sweeter sound, right. but um, I it, it does well. Probably this whole doubling thing compromises my endurance kind of stuff and and range. Like I will, I don't think I would ever compete with somebody that spends full time on that instrument. Mm -hmm. Like if if I were booking a West Side Story pit. I wouldn't book me on trumpet. I would book somebody who spends full time on trumpet. Right. Um, there's a lot of things that I can do, but um, that person's going to be, I think, much more crystal clear on the you know high, quiet stuff, and they're going to have a lot of things from that specialization that that I wouldn't. But right. there's there's a you know there's a flip side to that too. That um, from the time on the horn, you know that. Hornists uh, get all these uh, all this practice at uh, transposition mm -hmm. and um, transposition, uh, as we both know, it's is super useful in the pit. Um, there's all the time in sort of community theater and stuff when the, um, you know, arrangements are adjusted for particular vocalists and, you know, we're going to have to take this down a third or right. up a fourth or whatever. Right. And I'm, I'm known as the music director around here that always says no to that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, I'll find you an alternate note if you can't sing the high note. Um, but you know, actors yeah. will keep asking me anyway, but they, they figured out that they can go ask the director instead. And the director will say, David, can we go, <laughs> Can we do this? And I was like, well, I think MTI charges like 150 a song. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, right. It, so, it means pain from your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that's a, that's a whole different story. <laughs> um, yep. Let's back up. Based on what I've heard, you're a professional musician, but you're not a full-time professional musician. You do have a day job. And, and right. you, know, put, you know, I tell my students all the time, it's like, your role model needs to be... Uh, um, Borodin, composer. It's like he was, you know, he he wrote 
Prince Igor Palavitsyan dances, uh, a memorable symphony, a uh, memorable string quartet, and you know, a few, several other pieces. But he was a full-time mm -hmm. chemist. And apparently not just, and I didn't realize till like a few years ago, but you know, he was a, he was a chemist that it wasn't just like, well, I'm a chemist until I can get home and write some music. He actually excelled at his job. He's like, he actually contributed to the field. Uh, and I'm not mm -hmm. knowledgeable enough to quote what those achievements were, but it's like, you know, he was good at his job, but he was mm -hmm. also good at music. So, so I'm going to say, so it's a roundabout way of saying uh, even though you're not full time, I would say you're professional. How did you go from your early student years to let's take us on that journey? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I picked up um, trumpet in I think it was fifth grade, and there's nothing really remarkable about that. That's when people, uh, you know, start out on the basic instruments. And the subsequent year, uh, sixth grade, uh, the band director took some, I think all of us were trumpet players, took us aside and was like, hey, um, would anybody like the challenge of trying French horn and uh, learning that? It's a, it's a harder instrument. Uh, here's what it looks like. And, you know, obviously they look cool. And uh, so, yeah, a few of us switched over and started to play horn. And the, this was sort of the point where I diverged from what's commonly done um, it's it's very frequent that people start out on more basic instruments and then switch to, you know, oboe and English horn and horn and bassoon and the things, the more, uh, the rarer instruments. Mm -hmm. um, but usually people give up <laughs> the instrument that they came from. And really throughout uh, junior high and high school, I carried on uh, certainly doing those two. Uh, it was always horn uh, and mellophone in uh, concert band and marching band and trumpet and jazz band. Right. Um, and I, I liked the way that that worked out. And I don't particularly remember coming to trombone during high school, but I do know that my friend, uh, my woodwind friend Buckley and I had somehow we had like carte blanche to take any of the instruments that were in the, the, um, band storage room home and play around with them for, uh, you know, a few months at a time we were trusted to do that. And so I remember, um, spending a few, few months working on flute and some, uh, clarinet and Buckley would lend me, um, different members of the saxophone family, bassoon, a sousaphone for a little while. Um, and so I dabbled in, in a bunch of that, and, you know, at least learned the fingering system. And that would be perfect if I ended up being a composer or a, right. a music ed student. But mm -hmm. uh, that, that's not the way things went. And then a few other instruments came my way. I, I, if we skip forward to, like, end of college, um, I got into a band in the D.C. area that was a training band for... Um, people learning early jazz, like New Orleans, sort of, you know, people would call it Dixieland or traditional jazz would be the, the best name for it. And um, I had auditioned on trumpet or cornet and played with them for a couple of seasons. Um, and this was the whole idea was teaching youth uh, this style, because obviously the people that play this style are, are getting older. And there was a worry, I think, in the D.C. area that, you know, nobody was really picking it up, that it was going to be a dying out um, style. And uh, anyway, the after two seasons of that, they were they got a whole bunch of trumpet auditionees. And at the same time as I hope I get the order right here, I think they had their trombonist was moving out of the area or um, was not going to be able to continue on with the group. And so I spent the summer um, without, I think, really telling the band's director. I just rented a trombone and messed around with it on the summer and came back that fall and auditioned on trombone and got the spot. And the next couple of years, I, did, I repeated that same move as a bunch of trombonists came in, uh, that real trombonists that could uh, play circles around me. I spent the next summer woodshedding um, clarinet and showed up on clarinet, much to uh, everybody's amusement, and got the spot. 
and then did the same thing on um, tuba. And so, uh, yeah, um, so that's sort of how I got to playing the brass instruments. So let me just chase a few yeah. things here. So first of all, so uh, just to make sure, did you grow up in the D.C. area? Is that where you are, or did you move there for college? More grew up in, in that area. Western Massachusetts in my earlier years, and then um, sort of seventh grade on in uh, the D.C. area. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned uh, this band at the end of college. Did you go to college for music, or, or, or did you go there for something else and just kept music up along the way? This is kind of a loaded question. Uh, I'll explain. Um, I went to University of Rochester for um, ended up there three years and um, was studying electrical engineering, but doing putting together um, a minor in uh, just taking classes at Eastman School of Music, which is attached to University of Rochester because it's a fantastic place, and I was drawn to that also. I'm I'm not sure that at that point I was really putting together a music minor. I I caught myself saying that the um, but uh, I had a great time taking the freshman theory and um, trumpet and other stuff over on Eastman campus, and then ended up transferring. I, I changed my mind on electrical engineering and switched to computer science, and ended up transferring to Georgetown University in, in DC. And what I ended up with was a bachelor's in computer science and a minor in fine arts. Okay. Um, well, I mean, yeah. uh, you could, if you're going to take a few music classes, I'd say Eastman is up there pretty well <laughs> with your choices. Yeah. Um, I agree. And then, and this is the last thing I just uh, wanted to point out as I thought about this. The second person I interviewed, so it was episode three, Jim Brandt. Uh, one of the mm -hmm. things that he said that he was told as a student is that you have to make a choice if you're, when you're going to be a professional musician. Are you going to be a, a specialist or a generalist? And uh, it sounds like you you kind of chose the generalist. Uh, like like you mentioned, you know, you're pretty honest yeah. in your assessment that. Uh, well, I probably wouldn't hire myself for trumpet for West Side Story and that, you know, there's and you mentioned like the real trombone players, you know, coming to this band. But but you're also aware that, well, the, the trumpet players for West Side Story probably don't play trombone, probably don't play French horn, you know, not. Right. You know, and if they do, it's probably not that well. You know, if you're a student, you know, and you're trying to figure out what am I going to do musically? I mean, that's an important question. And it's and it's one that you pretty much have to answer fairly early on. Like I mean, you don't have to you don't have to know this when you're five, <laughs> right? You right. But but if you're starting college, I'd say you know you're you're getting your musical education, high school, whenever that is, kind of your your prime years where you're starting to think about a career. Um, mm -hmm. I think you got to pretty much decide. I'm gonna be like first chair symphony quality trumpet player, French horn player, or whatever, or I'm going to be good enough for most professional gigs on multiple instruments and increase my odds of getting hired. And, and I think what you maybe what you lose there is maybe a, a very top shelf of certain instruments, but you you get a high shelf, maybe not, you know, somewhere between the middle and the top of a lot more choices, I think, when you're a generalist. So it's an interesting yeah. choice to make. Yeah, yeah. Um I definitely chose generalist and I, you know, right. I, I'm, I'm completely fine with, there's plenty of trumpet players that are better than I am and plenty of hornets. My wife is a fantastic hornist, a much better hornist than I am. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things that she can do that I can't, but, um, you know, I sort of have some niches, some like, obviously the, the pit playing, uh, is my, comfort zone there's a lot of people that come into pit orchestras that um you know maybe don't know the genre and all those constructs of you know a vamp versus a safety and what the music director's listening for in their deciding to jump out of a vamp and all that stuff and it's a much easier sell to say to somebody oh i heard you were doing chorus line i've played that nine times right. uh, and i know i know these five of these books and and stuff like that like that's a whole level of you know that person's not going to be in the wrong place or come in with the you know double time or something like that right 
Yeah, there there is something to be said for just knowing that. And and let's transition to that. So when did theater come mm-hmm. into the picture? How old were you and what was your first show? Um, let's see, I would have been a freshman in high school and the show was Anything Goes. And uh, we were fortunate that this was um, in Arlington, Virginia, the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the school, Yorktown High School... I don't know if they still do this, but at the time they uh, they used students. They didn't really. I don't think there were ever any ringers in the pits, and that was you know I'm I'm really lucky that uh, that that was the case. I played I think a musical every year there, and sort of got bitten by the bug. So yeah, that anything goes. I was playing trumpet. Yeah, and it was it was really fun, and I I like keeping track of what's going on on stage, and it's really it's fun to me to see the same performance repeated uh, multiple times and to notice the differences and, and things like that. I, I think that's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Right. It's always kind of nice when you, uh, when you've played a show often enough that you can finally actually pay attention to the show and not worry right. too much about missing an entrance or, uh, or something like that. But you have to be careful with mm-hmm. that because then you can get overconfident and go, and then, then you do miss an entrance. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I think you said to me your professional career. Uh, so, so your, you know, your your anything goes was as a student. But you, I think you said your professional career started a little early. In high school, we had, and certainly in college, paid gigs occasionally. Um, in high school or shortly after high school, did you start getting professional gigs uh, in theater pits? The D.C. area doesn't have a ton of paid pits, um, and. Uh, as to why that is, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. Like the community theaters there just generally get lots and lots of volunteers. Might have to do with some all the service bands and mm-hmm. those players. Uh, I'm, I'm really not sure. But it's, a, it's sort of a rarity for a, a musical theater gig to have paid pit musicians there. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, so, you, so you've been a professional musician in... Uh you know, in the DC area as well as Boston and Seattle. So like, how do those Mm -hmm. theater scenes differ? Yeah. Those three places, uh, they're all super different from each other, just in terms of, you know, pit orchestra playing. Um, the, the Boston one, I got drawn to there, um, for, for the day job at that point, I was sort of afraid of having to restart and remake connections. Like, I, I don't know if you'd had that experience, like moving between um, cities and having to sort of restart your network of contacts and right. things. But, it, you know, it's kind of a, a, a pain and uh, you sort of lose some time and right. uh, ground in, in networking. And um, But I had mentioned that to a couple of friends uh, Paula and Buckley and, and Paula, I think worked in the Boston area before. And she's like, if you're, (laughs) if you're thinking you're, you like playing pit orchestra stuff, um, you shouldn't fear going to the Boston area. The Boston area has, you know, tons and tons of community theaters that all, you know, are constantly programming stuff or paid. And there is a ton of pit orchestra work in the Boston area. Do not don't fear that. And uh, I did end up taking that job. And boy, she was right. There was uh, mm-hmm. there was just a ridiculous amount of um, fun work and lots of, uh, you know, networking with friends and seeing the same different combinations of the same people on different jobs. And um, so, yeah, that was a real good situation. And then, um, like I said, about 15 years ago, we um, came to the Seattle area. And there's there's musical theater here, and the community theater stuff is mostly paid, um, at least sort of on the Seattle side and down towards Tacoma. But um, there's not nearly as much of it as uh, in the Boston area. And I was working with, uh, in Boston, three different, I'm not sure if they would qualify as regional theater, but sort of higher, at least higher end community theater that would have like half equity casts and uh stuff like that and um just for comparative purposes there's really only one theater that sort of occupies that same position in the seattle area right um 
Um, so, yeah, um, I, I would say in the Seattle area, mostly I've been working community theaters and being a ringer in school productions of things. And there's not nearly as much Sondheim here. <laughs> it just occurred to me that you're the first person that I talked to that has worked as a musician on the West Coast. Because I, I did talk to uh, my college friend, Laura, but she's as a composer in the L.A. area. And, you know, all of her work as a performer has been her own stuff. So I got to say on the East Coast, we don't we don't really think too much about I mean, we don't the, the West Coast doesn't come to mind when we think of places where you would go for you know, to have theater work and all that. But it, but it does sound like even though it doesn't compare to the city of Boston, at least it sounds like, you know, Seattle, Tacoma has some stuff. Yeah, it does. Um, and there are, you, you know, that like things that end up heading to Broadway, you know, often those things will do tryouts and they'll work out the kinks in different, you know, somewhere not New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know what really what goes into some of those decisions about what you know why choose one place over over another i know that there's like uh la jolla playhouse is like feeds uh is probably a pleasant place to work that feeds on um new works and things like that makes a concerted effort to do that um but yeah there's uh there have been some shows um that have uh you know, started out in the Seattle area and gone to Broadway. I was thinking in particular of uh, Come From Away and uh, Young Frankenstein. We got to see those ones um, here before uh, before they went to Broadway. Oh, nice. How has your multiple brass skills come in handy on shows? What, what, what kind of books have you done where you've done more than one? Well, as, as you mentioned, there's there are about... I hope I'm not missing anything, but I think there's about four families of brass instruments, and each one of them has a a few sort of common doubles that you might easily see a book written for. So uh, a trumpeter might have, um, for particular effect, might have flugelhorn or a cornet or a piccolo trumpet Mm -hmm. uh, commonly in the books. Trombone would have uh, tenor or bass trombones and sometimes double on euphonium. I can think of a few shows. Actually, that came up in one of your previous episodes. Right. And um, and then tuba, you know, sometimes uh, there will be a bass book that doubles. Well, frequently there will be uh, acoustic bass or double bass and electric bass. But sometimes it'll they'll throw tuba in the mix as well, uh, and and find somebody that plays all those. Um, pe- for the most part, though, um, people don't write uh, things that would double. They they don't write books that would double trumpet and horn or trumpet and trombone. Um, right. I, I can't think of too many. Um, so there have been a, a few things that I've played where, you know, it was an original um, show. In I'm thinking of, like, uh, in this area, Seattle Children's Theater uh, comes up with new shows uh, a fair bit, and there was a production of Lyle the Crocodile that they wrote. And because I'd already sort of been contracted, um, they, they were able to arrange a, a trumpet and horn doubling book, right. uh, sort of customize the thing for who they had, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, but the, I, I think part of the reasons, you know, it must be that, that there's not, it's harder to book personnel for non-traditional doubles there, you know, uh, that might be a, a, a difficulty doing that. But, um, that said, oftentimes when there's these little smaller pit orchestras, uh, in particular in community theater, when you're not really representing a, a very full orchestra, um, there's, uh, seems like a lot of opportunities when, you know, the music director has budget for three, four, six or eight people. And I guess my theory was it's, it's going to be a strong temptation to, um, bring in somebody brass wise that could play, that could, 
either you could hand a sort of customized book to and on a song by song or measure by measure basis, figure out what the person was going to play, um, depending on the arrangements that are there. Or um, oftentimes I'll, you know, I'll get contracted to do something like that and just say, um, you know, for this show, maybe it would, maybe I've played it before, what would be sort of the most useful stuff if we've got these these other things covered right. um and uh and i'll find myself sort of grabbing a copy of the trumpet horn and trombone books or sometimes cello or things like that and drawing um you know the, the good parts out of uh a lot of them right uh, it was just it was last year uh the spring of last year that uh, I music directed a production of Man of La Mancha, and uh, yeah, that that's like a, I'm not even sure that's like a, a 16 piece pit if you get everything. But we had mm-hmm. we had a budget where, in addition to myself, we could hire five. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, right. Um, I got one reed player. Obviously, have to have a guitarist, uh, bass player, and then what I did was um, I found somebody in the San Francisco area that arranged it for exactly five and and what he did was he he you have uh two horns uh two horn books one basically plays horn all the time and the other one Mm -hmm. switches to trumpet on the the songs where you've got to have trumpet you know like in the overture and so forth and um i just had an awful time in this area finding uh, you know, enough people who could do two full weeks of shows on that trumpet and French horn book. I, I think I had three different people sitting that one of them did not play trumpet. So they transposed the trumpet part on horn. And oh then the other two, <laughs> the other two, I think were pretty similar. I'd, I'd called them trumpet first, horn second players. So mm-hmm. we, we put the, the bona fide horn player on the first book, you know, first part whenever possible <laughs> and then kind right. of, and took the other player and when, when it had to be two horns, put them down on the, on the second. And, mm-hmm. um, but that, that was the only experience I've had with a trumpet French horn doubling and it was customized, you know, for that <laughs> production. Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't know that uh, somebody had put that work in. Um, yeah. I love that, uh, that show and it's such great writing. And I, I have been, I, I won't name names, but I have been asked by a music director, um, hey, would you like to play Man of La Mancha? And I'm like, ooh, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, tell me more. Um, like, and they're like, um, yeah, I'd like you to play uh, horn. And I, I think trumpet and horn. And I said, well, who's the, like, uh, do you have other brass? And they'd be like, no, you're it. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. No, I, I, I really love that show, and I don't want to do that to that show. I think I don't think one brass no. um, can cut it. There's too much like glorious harmony to to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the first when I listened to it, I was like the 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 two horns working together. You know, really really adds oh, yeah. to a lot of that, especially a lot of the dun 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 dun. You know, the, the oh yeah yeah flamenco. golden helmet of Mambrino and yeah. And, uh, oh, but yeah, that was, that, that was a fun show. It was, uh, it was, um, you know, just, it was difficult with five, but it did somehow work. You know, it's not the same as having the full pit, but yeah, uh, still, still a lot of fun. So you've had some busy moments in your career. So what's it like doing 25 shows a year, especially as a brass player? And, and actually let's just kind of tie this uh-huh. together. You've done, you told me that you've done. 25 and i'll clarify mm-hmm. not performances but productions so like beach production has multiple performances so 25 yeah. shows in a year and you've also had because i know like the broadway standard is eight shows a week you've done mm-hmm. 11 shows in a week so and then bra and and brass players have you know i i, I still hear my composition teacher says don't give the brass players hamburger lips <laughs> what do you what do you do to keep <laughs> right. those lips fresh and um i mean just tell us about that what getting yeah, yeah. so busy um sure i and I, I should correct the record i i went back and i was like looking at to for what year it was that i um was you know remembering doing 25 productions and i i think the 
think the maybe my memory was uh, embellishing things. I I had twenty one show different um, productions in two thousand one, and that was in the Boston area. That would that would be the uh, the data supporting uh, that Boston has a lot of uh, music work, but um, that. I mean, that was really fun. And, um, my, uh, wife was working too. And there were a few shows that year that, um, that we overlapped in different ways, got to play together on some of it. And, um, it was, Oh, 2003 at the beginning of the year, there was a a West side story production, which is a great way to start the year where the, um, role of little john was played by yo-yo ma's son mm. that's safe safe to say nice. and um uh and then a couple of productions of little night music which is a great sondheim uh book and and a great horn book uh one of them was with my wife uh will rogers follies which is a a really beautiful set of music and a kind of a rarely done show um my wife music directed a uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum and I got to play that. Except two um, Sondheim now. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Two on the way to, to seven that year. Oh wow. Uh, which is, I know. Yeah. It's ridiculously uh, great. Um, and then there was, uh, there were like long runs of Mano La Mancha and sideshow, both of which are great. And they overlapped a little bit and, mostly they were with the theaters that had a mostly equity cast. Um, and there was a production of Sweeney Todd up in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And then the last year, the last show of that year was a concert production of Follies that had, um, Len Carreyou as the headliner, mm-hmm. um, it, who is the, uh, original Sweeney Todd on the album and, uh, from Broadway. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite a year. I finally listened to that original album just maybe a, a month ago. And um, I, I'm one of those people, I, I tell my friends, you know, I, look, I love playing for musical theater. I don't get uh, like a general joy of listening to cast albums. And a lot of it has to do with like the production. I don't know, there's something about the production quality. There's a mm-hmm. certain sound, like sometimes I've been asked to music direct shows and I listen to the cast album and you know it's like oh really um, you know <laughs> but but then i hear it actually put together by live actors and you get out of the mm-hmm. s- the studio effects and and you get away from some of the like tendencies that that you hear on a studio album that you don't necessarily hear on the stage you know vocally mm-hmm. and it's like oh okay this is this is actually good material uh, <laughs> there there are very few exceptions i have like uh, the original recording of West Side Story. I think I would yeah. place I would place it on like 20th Century's greatest albums. But the yeah, the original recording of Sweeney Todd, it's like the orchestra that is such bold playing and you know and of course mm-hmm. the yeah, the performance from of Sweeney and just all of the actors really great. Yeah, that yeah. that is a bucket list show I have not played yet. Oh yeah. To follow up on your other, your other question was, you know, what's it like doing 11 shows a week? These were, um, I had done um, four runs of 100 shows with um, Seattle Children's Theater. Uh, two of them in different years were uh, Wizard of Oz. It's a whole lot of fun. Um, it was pretty all-consuming. I was doing that at the same time as holding down a full-time job, uh, day job. Uh, and fortunately my, my boss was, I had taken on this new job and had already signed on to this, the first of those hundred show runs. And I had to have an uncomfortable, uh, discussion with my new boss for the day job and said, Hey, uh, I don't know how to, uh, deal with this other than just to say it i had contracted to do this and you know if you really need me to i can back out of it um i would understand uh that this is not an okay thing in a in a new job but um you know uh i ended up he was he was great and said yes and i brought my laptop and there you know on those two show days i would go and um, you know, be there in plenty of time for, uh, for call 
and warm up and play the first show and then grab, you know, put all my stuff away, grab my laptop, go sit in the lounge and, and do my day job. Nice. And, uh, yeah, yeah. For six, seven hours and eat and, um, and then go play another show there. Um, was, it's really great place to work. The 11 shows. So that was all of wizard of Oz, right? Is that what yeah, you okay. Yeah. All right. So if I'm doing the math right, because that's about that's at least two hours a show. That's about two to three. So um playing let's just round, let's just round let's just put it around it. Thirty hours of playing out of a mouthpiece per week. What do you do to keep your lip from falling off? <laughs> I think I had taken some advice from uh, this guy, um, this friend Paul, who's in the Boston area that had toured for years with Les Mis. And like during that kind of aggressive schedule, I think you just have to be, you know, do warm ups and warm downs and um, clear your schedule of other stuff and um and take care of yourself i mean just just like the cast does um you you really can't afford to get um you know a cold or um things like that are just going to wreak havoc with your with your schedule and so it's you know just uh eating healthy and um yeah warm-ups and warm-downs yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about with actors. Uh, you know, last year, the the show I'm arranging was in Atlanta, and uh, we I, I I roomed. I was put up, you know, in a house with this the same as one of our leading equity actors, and mm -hmm. uh, and 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 he would he would say, hey, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and cool down. So he's the first actor I met that you know took the time to cool down, not just warm warm up, but he would know. do little exercises with his voice. But he also had like a briefcase of, I'll just call it voice care in there. It's like he had like the humidifier. He had his vitamins. It's like, uh, I don't know, just, <laughs> just, just a whole health kit designed to keep his voice as fresh as possible. He had a whole routine and, and you know, he's, he's, he works in New York. He's been on Broadway casts and, and I just, uh -huh. you've got to do what you got to do to protect your, tools you know <laughs> your, or oh, your yeah. instrument your in, and your instrument is you it's your voice in that case so but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just interesting to to hear and i and i and i suppose you know it's just like you get used to anything you it, I, I assume if you if you played 20 hours a week oh what's what's going to 30 you know right <laughs> you know what's 10 more hours <laughs> right right um it's kind of like I, I haven't done much running but you know it's like i can say running running eight miles wasn't much different than when I got to five, you know, it's like now at some point you do get to that mark where like, I think I got to around 10 and I was like, this is hard, <laughs> especially, yeah, when you, especially yeah. when you're running on the hills and stuff, you know, uh, the one, one more thing before we, uh, um, switch away from this, but the, most of the people that I tell, you know, that I've done a hundred, you know, these runs of a uh, hundred, like it's, the thought is like, how could anybody tolerate that much of the same thing? And, um, and I can't really speak for their, you know, the people that spend years on the same, you know, touring the same show or in Broadway or whatever, but the, um, the hundred show thing, especially in a situation like that, where you can see the, um, show, uh, there was just, uh, unanticipated delightful stuff from uh to do like it was not uh, by show 90 or whatever there was not like a oh i have to do this 10 more times and, and dreading it like the um you get to see like the little things that are different from the cast every day there's you know there's all the foreground stuff that you spend a couple of weeks watch the first couple of weeks watching and then there's all the background things and things that people do a little differently to keep it fresh and then there's once you've memorized everything that's going off on in the foreground and background you can see the uh, at least in this setup you could see the um the audience the kids that are enjoying the you know wizard of eyes and you knowing what's going on and what's about to happen um you know you can sort of watch 
um, them enjoy it with the, the parents and, um, they're just some really, you know, heartwarming and funny things, just watching people's expressions and, and their reactions to things. So, uh, right. I didn't, I don't dread long runs of, uh, no. stuff at all. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of jobs where you do the same thing and you know, I just imagine, you know, it's, or I just, you know, picture myself, you know, when, when I go into a store, when I used to go into a store, you know, like before the pandemic and, mm-hmm. and you would see, you know, a cashier and, and the line's like 20 people long. And I'm like, so take their money, ring it up, take their money, ring it up. Or are you thinking about like a fast food, someone who works in a fast food place? It's like the way I understand it or way I remember it is like fast food, your job's the fries, you know, or your job's the, you kind of like your assembly line and you do this and, and it's just like, here, here's a burger. Here's the next burger. Here's the next burger. <laughs> so there's a lot right. of things that are, that, you know, involve some monotony. Um, but I think, you know, it's a, it's a challenge that any good musician should be, should strive for is to make each performance fresh. And, and like you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, I just think about like, I don't know, I don't know what pit musicians have spent the most time in Phantom of the Opera, but you know, <laughs> That's eight shows a week for, uh, you know, 50 some, you know, probably at least 50 weeks. So 400 performances a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, if they're, I assume that if you're in that, you know, you're probably not in a big hurry to go find something else. So there's probably some musicians that have done multiple years of that. And that's <laughs> right. I think at a certain point you probably consider like, this is, you know, this is my career. I'm going to, uh, you know, maybe retire on the money from playing this show 10 or 12 years or whatever until it closes down. Right. So you said you had an experience in Boston for a a chorus line and apparently uh, (laughs) someone was asking you to play quieter, but they had a different idea. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's close. The The instinct was not to ask the pit to play quieter. It was a production that was pretty decent sized uh um orchestra they had uh, all six of the brass books staffed uh to and i think we had a harp too which you um is is kind of a rarity as you've talked about before mm-hmm. um and uh and we had an actual um sunken pit and um we uh you know apparently must, during prod week it must have been uh, too loud in the house and that that's a whole other theme that hasn't really been expressed here is like somebody sitting in the pit has absolutely zero idea what the sound balance is like in the house mm-hmm. even the music director you know most of the time unless they've got somebody with trained ears out in the um right. in the house isn't going to know what the balance is like and and really needs that kind of feedback but anyway so um it's it's production week is probably toward the beginning of production week uh leading up to the to opening and you know we're doing great stuff in the pit and we come in the next day and uh and there are i think it was like three lay the orchestra opening on top was covered with three layers of black gauze of some sort i don't know what the fabric was right but um it became an oven down in the pit and the, you know, it was explained to us as we've been having overwhelming, uh, pit orchestra sound and that will help that or something. And, um, so as a result, it's a, it's an oven down there. And this was, um, their intent was to have us in dress blacks and, um, and, and whatnot, and really uncomfortable in that environment being so hot and sweaty and and whatnot and so we said something and the next day uh we come into the pit and there is a giant uh biggest air conditioner i've ever seen sitting in the middle of the pit um right in front of me but blowing right on the bass player um and uh and it was like vented out to the outside it was not a window unit it was you know, one of those looks like a furnace that's in somebody's house and, um, made a ton of, ton of noise. And so we had to have it, we had to keep turning it off 
um, whenever we were playing. So the thing, you know, the poor bass player, the uh, the thing's either on and making a ton of noise and blowing cold air directly on his instrument and obviously affecting the tuning, uh, or or it's off and things are, you know, <laughs> quiet and heating back up. It was just a mess of a situation that could have all been saved by giving some feedback to the orchestra and saying, you know, it's great that we have these uh you know six brass and i don't know how many woodwinds and all this stuff but um we really have to have a bigger dynamic range um you guys can play out on the dance breaks but we need it much quieter for underscoring um yeah i played just, for that's how, i played for some good houses and and sometimes just uh, i just get david quieter on the underscores like yeah. Yes, that's that's all you need to say. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and anybody who's done this knows, you know, if if you personally can't hear the voices on the stage, then there's a reasonable chance that you're covering them up. So uh, so I like the fact you've got a few you've got a few games that you play and and one you said you and a friend are trying to get an alphabetical show list of shows that you've done and you're getting <laughs> close to the end on it sounds like but the last two are uh i don't know how i'm gonna ever achieve them there uh this is completely um this is the biggest musical theater nerd game at all uh of all i think but um uh, yeah so the uh, the idea we started comparing notes of the shows that we'd played and um and we started thinking you know, how, how much of the alphabet have we covered where, you know, assassins, Brigadoon, children of Eden, mm -hmm. uh, and, and whatnot for one for each of the letters. And, uh, I think at the time when I left Boston, I had about five letters left, mm -hmm. like U X Z Q. Those are the ones that are hard yeah. to find something for. Well, a lot of people uh, do I, you're I, in town now, so that's, Yes. Probably an easy one. <laughs> that was yeah, that was my U. Uh and V I finally tracked down a production of uh Victor Victoria and uh and played that. And um actually I had the the good luck way earlier in the DC area to have played Zorba, which is a great Cantor and Ebb show. Um right. so I had some of the tough ones covered, but I don't know why sort of why was Young Frankenstein? No, I I don't think I've actually played that one. Um, okay. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Oh, okay. Well, that works. Yeah. That's the Y one I got. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're down to. I'm down to two. I'm down to X and Q. Yeah. <laughs> and there are shows. Yeah. But they don't have uh, like Xanadu and Quilters. Right. I, I mean, I think there's a few other ones, but I don't think that there's any of them that really have brass parts. So. Right. Either either somebody commissioned some new shows. Right. Or uh, I learned some other instruments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very close. Yeah. A new show's coming out all the time. So, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe we can get some, I don't know. There was a, there's a Stephen King short story called Quitters Incorporated. So, you know, me and, and Stephen King, apparently all you got to do is pay him a dollar and, and, and you, you can adapt his work. So, you just need somebody to go do that, <laughs> make a musical yeah, out of it. Maybe that. Maybe I'll write a show. Yeah. Just so uh, get closer to the uh, the finish line on and that. There's got to be queen of something, you know. There's got to be queen queens. I don't know. You know just, it, there it was just, that movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you should be able to. Maybe uh, actually, I hadn't explored this, but maybe I can find some opera that's yeah. queen something or other, and uh, and and finish up that way. Not a whole lot of time to go through all of your anecdotes, so give, give give me a good one. What's a what's a an anecdote you would like to share? Just some fun memories in the pit. Oh sure, I was playing a uh, I think it was Wizard of Oz. It was one of the Seattle Children Children's Theater ones, and uh, it was um, my read playing colleague Max and I had um, a role to play in the you know at in all these shows, or maybe not all these shows, uh, the production has a little speech about turning off your cell phones and whatnot at the beginning. And they, uh, Mark, the music director, had pre-recorded a, uh, a speech about turning off the cell phones. And since we were all 
the pit was visible to the audience. Um, they were playing the pre-record of him, and he was sort of miming along. And we had this little, you know, one-minute skit where Mark would be talking about it, that you should not <laughs> not be doing stuff on your phones and turn them off. And Max and I were behind him and had been given these little prop phones where um, while we were instructed to, like, pretend to be chatting on the phone and, and whatnot while he was doing this, and then he would turn around at some point in that and uh, notice that we were on the phones ourselves and fuss at us and collect our phones in a, in a little basket. <laughs> um, a couple of weeks into the run, we were brainstorming during a, a break, and, and the music director was not around, the uh, absurd things <laughs> that we could do for fun, uh, because that's <laughs> that's what Max and I like to do. Mm -hmm. And we happened on this idea, uh, like, what would Mark do if he turned around and we had gigantic phones in our hands? <laughs> uh, not not the ones that he expected. And we really were giggling about the, uh, the thought of that. We started wondering, like, where we could, you know, how could we actually make that happen? And I, I popped onto a certain well-known shopping website, and uh, and you could absolutely buy uh, a gigantic red inflatable phone and could have it there in a few days. And so uh, I ordered two of them, uh, and uh, and we took Max and I took great pains to uh, to hide these props behind us in the drum area. And when Mark turned around at that point in the uh, in the speech, he saw us on these big, you know, they were about four feet, uh, <laughs> four feet long, each of them. And he just lost it. It, nice. it took him, seemed like it took him a good minute to uh, regain <laughs> his uh, composure. Nice. It was very rewarding. <laughs> nice. So, you know, I, I've actually avoided talking about the whole, what are you doing during this pandemic time? But um, are there any musical things that you're doing uh, during this time? I don't have any shows on the radar uh, at all. Um, I had it. Uh, I'd finally had a couple of runs of um, Chicago that I had programmed. That I played a lot of Kander and Ebb shows, and that one is like one of their more popular ones. Mm -hmm. Never actually played it, and uh, and so the the pandemic has clobbered my uh, my shot at. Uh, at, uh, doing Chicago this year. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been, um, the only thing that I've got going on, uh, right now is that, uh, I play trumpet in the horn section of a, uh, of a rock band. And, um, we have been doing some rehearsals in a big space with doors open to the outside, you know, sort of taking the proper precautions and having, um, masks on when we're near each other and, and, uh, being very careful. Um, and that's been pretty rewarding. Um, just, you know, getting together and, and making music while being careful. Right. Uh, there's groups of like, uh, hornists and, and other brass groups, um, have been doing those sort of, uh, remotely recorded, piece the videos together into like a grid yeah. um, with uh, some of that and uh, done a little bit of that just to sort of keep the chops going. But uh, no, until we know the pandemic's over, regrettably, uh, right. shows to look forward to. Right. Um, which is hard. <laughs> so um, didn't know if this was something you wanted to share or not, but do you, do you have a website or where any place where people can find you if they want to? Uh, get in touch with you about doing their shows when we can do shows again. Oh, oh, um, well, the I, I mean, I do have a website, but uh, it's not exactly a, a marketing effort. Right. Um, I would say f um, uh, Facebook would probably be the right the the way to uh, reach out to me. I'm not really on the um, Instagram or uh, some of the other social media, um, but uh, Facebook would be a yeah a good way to track me down. Okay. Not too All many right. Harlan well, Feinsteins. All right. Well, that sounds good. Uh, well, again, thanks for reaching out. Thanks for listening to the podcast, but also thank you for being sure. uh, for being a great guest.
Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, thanks. It's been really fun. And that concludes episode number 29. We will be back here next week with episode number 30. And I will be talking to uh, someone else who plays all of the woodwinds. And if you've been uh, listening to all of the episodes up to this point, and you're like, David, another one? Um, haven't you had enough woodwind players on the show? Uh, well, f- just a couple of responses to that. First of all, if this show goes on for a while, we're going to have multiple guests of, of every instrument. And second... Each guest is unique with the experiences that they've had on those instruments. And um, so I'm going to be talking to Taiki Azuma, and he has uh, yet a different perspective uh, on playing multiple woodwinds than I've heard from previous conversations. So I look forward to sharing that with you next week on episode number 30. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, please be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music, or you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Perillo for his cover art and to Bill Sisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane, and you can follow us or leave feedback at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, And please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.